so we're back again for another week. Everyone got a beer? Got a drink. <laughs> what are you drinking? I've got water tonight. All right, all right. Water. The water. <laughs> on beer, but, you know, I work Saturdays now, so I can't drink too much. But anyway, we're, we're back again for another week. Um, it's uh, all about the working classes this week, which we will uh, come back to properly later on. Um, other than that, it's, it's all the usual kinds of things. Um, yeah, nothing much else to uh, to say, really. We're uh, welcoming listeners now from Romania and France and uh, and Belgium and various other countries. So our international listener base is growing. Padres' children are coming to the they're, they're coming to the congregation, and uh, the you know world domination is 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 getting closer all, all the time. I, I won't rest until we've got a listener in Antarctica. We'll find one. We'll find one. Outpost thirty one. Come on, we need we need we need one from there. Maybe I need to start um, learning. Uh, thank you for listening in various different languages, so we can uh, we can actually do these things properly. But yeah, to everyone who's listening all around the world, UK included, thank you for still you know tuning in every week. Because um, uh, yeah, we're we are four months into this now. This is episode sixteen, so we've been doing it for over four months. So uh, yeah, really pleased with that. Anyway, um, before we get on to the uh, to the meatier subjects, um, what the fuck have we been listening to this week? Motorhead, shitloads of Motorhead. <laughs> um, which is which will become clear why I've listened to my so much Motorhead later on. But um, yeah, Overkill, No uh, Sleep Till Hammersmith. Um, well, rock and roll. So that it's quite a pretty, pretty damn good album, actually. What, what was the other song? I mean, the actual album Motorhead, then the album Overkill, then the album Rock and Roll. Those three albums, really. Just been listening to them a lot as I've been, um, and then also some Sabbath and um, Priest, and uh, also Exodus. Nice, fabulous disaster. Quality album. Not much new at the minute, unfortunately. No, but. Uh, there's not a lot of particularly good new stuff around at the moment, to be honest. I'm trying to think if I've listened to anything recently new that's... I mean, I've been going to the gym because I've been back home and I've got time. And I just, you know, got like a thrash metal playlist for the gym. Of course. You know, and like, you know, if you're on the bike or the running machine or the rowing machine, I'm telling you, like, songs like Whiplash, Angel of Death are great because you know, it's upbeat, it's fast. And what I usually do is kind of like try and get you know, when the guitar solo for Whiplash starts, and I'm like, I've got 20 seconds, I'm going to try and get my BPM up over 160. And I'm like, just go on, <laughs> just, just go for it, you know? Um, I did see someone at the gym yesterday wearing a Metallica Sad But True t-shirt, and he, he was only about 13, and I was, I was going to go and rip it off him. No, I'm only joking. Um, I'm, but I, I would say, I mean, like, is it okay to go to a gym and work out in a band t-shirt? Well, there are there are um, lines of workout clothing, or you know, band merchandise, but but functional workout clothing. No, it does exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It does. I was hoping that would be the case because I'd like some running stuff that's band related. So, like, you just get like a a, a motorhead T-shirt. This is like no sweat to Hammersmith. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is proper. It's like base layers and all sorts. Remember, I mean, Maiden have done a range of um, cycling jerseys as well over the years. So, you know, it, it does exist. But I, I, I do want them. 
Um, it is out there, so the trouble is, is it you know you need to avoid black. I, mean, I think it's all. In, I think it's all black. It's fine. In, it's fine in Britain, I suppose, but it's uh, it's not ideal. I usually have me white, old white stuff. Um, I mean, it's another week as well. It's another week, and the, the Kate Bush song is still on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the the Radio Two playlist because uh, I'm I'm hearing a lot of Radio Two at the moment. But I just want to say, like, Ooh. I know it's eight minutes and thirty two seconds long, but. Master of Puppets is in the charts now. Yeah. Someone should have the balls to play it. No, they won't. We should just be thankful that it's there. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, eight minutes and 32 second long song in the top 30 is one thing. We've we got we to recognise, I think, the last, last few weeks, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi and Dio have all you know, being um, properly exposed. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm not having that. When did Bon Jovi ever have a problem with getting exposure? Come on. <laughs> How many times do you hear knocking on heaven's door on the radio? How many times have I heard that compared to how many times I've heard Master of Puppets? Bon and I'm sorry, even like Guns N' Roses, they'll play Sweet Child of Mine on Radio 1 or Radio 2. I mean, they're not going to go and play My Michelle, but they'll play like knocking on heaven's door. Um, um, so Bon Jovi living on a prayer, sorry. Dio, yeah. If I hear Dio on the radio, that would be a that would be a seminal moment. But the only time I've ever heard Metallica on the radio is when I was in Canada. And my father-in-law had a rock station on, and I heard Enter Sandman, and I think it was uh, um, Unforgiven, and I was like, whoa, you know. Uh, but you know that you're more likely to hear that kind of stuff on those because they're proper rock stations. Where what yeah, we yeah, well, we've we've got Planet Rock, but obviously it's not on FM radio, is it? Like it is, you know, in the states and Canada, they've got all this stuff on FM as well as DAB and online. So it, that's that's what makes the difference. We'll, we 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 would never have anything like that on FM radio. No way. But we do have Planet Rock. Does FM stand for fuck metal? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it did, but it is what it is. And look, we, we'd moan if it was all over the radio as well. So I don't want it all over the radio. Just, just show it the respect it deserves. A bit of recognition. And what have you been listening to this week? Uh, Midnight. Nice. Uh, yeah. The Let There Be Witchery album that came out earlier this year, uh, which is all right. Um, I really dug the last album. Can't remember what it was called, but um, something blasphemous, whatever. But that was, yeah, a proper nasty, evil-sounding speed metal, very motorhead and venom influenced. Yeah, dirty. And yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's released another one, so that's uh, that's good. Uh, Volker X, Ooh. which is uh, it's synthwave, um, very big, epic, cinematic uh, synthwave. Um, it's there's some guitars there, can be a bit heavy, but it's um, yeah, so it's, it's a bit bit of a different pace to some of the other artists I like, but yeah, very um, um, quite quite worth a worth a listen. And uh, yeah. that's about V O L K O R. Yep. Next, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's he's they they've done a lot of video game related stuff, so there's loads of albums on Spotify, but you know, not many studio albums. But yeah, it's just like I say, big. 
big sweeping uh, synth wave. Uh, quite refreshing. I'll have a listen to that. Um, yeah, worth a bash. Uh, and yeah, Guns and Roses, because yesterday was the 35th anniversary of Appetite for Destruction. So I was it was. Usual illusion. Um, the greatest yeah. debut album that we've ever known. I can't. It's, I can't think of a better one. It's yeah. Um, yeah, certainly in rock and metal, it's struggling. It does. It doesn't mm. even need an episode. It's it's just a it's it's just a, a fact. There's there's nothing. No nobody comes close. Mm, I, I think I think a few bands come close. I mean, I, like, I think I think Rage Against Machines' debut album is particularly special. Yeah, I'll give you that. I wouldn't put it in the same league though. Yeah. Trying to think of anyone else. Yeah, we, we can come back. There is, there isn't, there's, there's no argument. There's lots of great ones, arguably great, great ones, um, you know, important ones. But yeah, I mean, that that's just, you know, a different, um, different planet. Yeah, it is. That, that, that album. Um, what have I been listening to this week? The new Bleeding Through, sort of three new songs on a single. Yeah, listen to that yet, Anne? Uh, no, no, that's, that's eluded me. Although I think I kind of. I think their sort of re reform eluded me at the time. I wasn't really listening to heavy stuff at that point, so I'll have to dig in. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's it's exactly what you'd expect it to be, but they do it better than most. So it's you know, it's, it's nice and heavy. It's really aggressive. There's lots of keyboards and synths and stuff like usual. But it's um, no, it's 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 good. I I I, I just like the. I just like the. Uh, I like the formula, so you know it works for me. Um, Erne or Earn or Erna, what, what what's the right way of pronouncing that? Earn, 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 Earn. Um, but I'm I'm absolutely loving that album. I think it's it's fucking brilliant. It's 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 very different to anything else I've heard in recent years, and the fact they're British um, just makes them even better, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's really really good. Really original, great riffs, aggressive, angry, atmospheric at times as well. It, I think it's it's got the lot, um, and they need to come on this podcast and and talk to us about it all because really fucking good, really good. And um, Exorder as well. I haven't listened to for fucking donkey's years. That popped up earlier in the week, which was quite enjoyable. I think it was off the back of the whole Pantera thing. It was. Uh, they were starting to pop up on social media and that, but didn't they? Um, did, did you ever listen to the band they they sort of morphed into later on, Floodgate? No. Yeah, no, they, released one, they released one album in '96, which is again very um, sludgy, sort of stonery metal. Yeah. Um, it was all right. It was good. I think I was, that was a, that was an album knocking around when I got into the scene. Um, so I was probably listening to anything that I came across. I'll give that a go. But yeah, Floodgate. I think I, I think I've got it somewhere. Cheap. And there's been a few other bits and pieces around these days, like the, uh, this week, though, this um, new Slipknot song out this week, isn't there, which wasn't bad. Yeah. I think it was good as the last one. It was I mean, Slipknot, isn't it? Um, yeah. It, felt, it sounded quite clean. It was it was quite a clean one, because yeah. the, the last song that came out a few months back, um, the Chapel Town Rag, was, was almost just full-on death metal, wasn't it? So this one's kind of a little bit more the other way. But um, but no, it's, it, I think it's it's pretty good. I, I like what they do these days, whether it's clean or whether it's whether it's heavy. I think you know it's, it's a formula that works. So I never thought I'd, I, said, I never thought I'd have said that 
15, no, 20 years ago. But, but you got, you know, I mean, it's what, seven, it's album number seven coming up in September? I think so, yeah. Maybe 23 years they've been at this. I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, they're a classic metal band at this stage. Yeah, they're, 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 I, they're a slick machine now, so. I mean, I, I always had a problem with them being being called new metal if i'm honest they were never like, they were never new yeah metal. Never. They, they if you think what new metal was for the most part they were always in aberration and they're yeah. it's metal it's it's a bit heavy it's a bit fresh it's a bit death it, it's yeah okay it, it had the 90s sort of you know electronic and hip-hop sort of influence here and there but it, it's just metal yeah it is there's there's no new metal about it i think it, it was just it was timing wasn't it with slipknot and because yeah. there was lots of visual aspects to it, they just got lumped in with it. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is. But no, I, I think I think the, the new album will be good. And no doubt they'll tour it next year. No doubt they'll headline download, I expect. So, um, but yeah, that's that's been about it this week. So, you know, um, let's do a little bit of metal news. Not really a lot of metal news, to be honest with you, but there's been a few new releases this week, which are worth talking about. Um, but before that... Um, Tony Iommi is involved in the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games. Damn right. Which is which is quite cool. Obviously, it's in Birmingham, yeah. so that's that's probably why. But they had to do something with, well, if not Aussie, then Tony, because I'm sick of Aussie though. Because exactly. yeah. Aussie, Aussie was at the Jubilee. Iommi and Halford. That's what you want. <laughs> At least, at least if it's Tony Omi, you know he's going to perform correctly and it's not going to have to be yeah. doctored. What I want to see is right. Rob Halford ride into the stadium on a Harley Davidson with Hellbent for Leather playing to inspire the athletes to actually, you know, run Hellbent <laughs> for Leather. And, you know, what, what song is Omi going to play to inspire the athletes? Well, he's not. He's doing something with some saxophone player or something yeah. so it's, yeah. you know which is a bit which is a bit of a shame because collaboration but yeah yeah i think you, you can imagine him you know just playing the riff the children of the grave i think that'd be enough to get people in the mood you know or maybe the song title probably doesn't necessarily well it would someone would find it offensive so maybe not but even so it's good it's good to see that that he is involved but you know birmingham Birmingham fully respects the fact that Sabbath and you've got the, the bench and the bridge and all that kind of stuff. They, you know, they're, they're firmly part of Birmingham's culture and history. So fair play. Because if it was in London, you wouldn't have fucking Dave Murray from Maiden playing riffs, would you? It just, just wouldn't happen. So, I mean, if it was Liverpool, you'd have McCartney. Exactly. You're really get away from yeah. it. And the, I, I'm the not... question remains, though. The question remains is the state what what stadium are they using? Have they built a purpose-built stadium? Uh yeah, I think I think it is a purpose-built stadium, isn't it? I'm not sure. Probably. Right, so I, are they I, gonna I give know, it are they it. gonna give the stadium then to one of the Birmingham football clubs like they give in Manchester City? You remember they gave Manchester City the stadium of the Commonwealth Games? Well, it was it's the same with West Ham renting the Olympic Stadium, isn't it? Um, but no, I don't think so. You know. Birmingham, Birmingham City belong in their shitty little corner of the city anyway, and they can. All right, just calm them. down. <laughs> and fuck Wolves, and fuck the rest of them. And Villa don't need anything else because Villa Park's one of the greatest grounds in the country. So <laughs> fuck a lot of them. Villa Park is a dump. Shut the fuck up. Look, I've I've been to Ewood Park, and it was a fucking disgrace. So, and it's half a ground. 
It's like a League Two ground for fuck's sake. Jeez, and don't get me started I'm, on Sellers Park. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I love Sellers Park, but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I can't claim any kind of superiority there. I mean, Christ, it's, it's been horrible seeing the, the um, women's Euros being played in Brighton because it's like, you know, it's a new stadium. It, yeah. It I mean, it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. And seriously, it fucking stinks. You step off a train and because it's farmland everywhere, you just it just smells of shit everywhere. <laughs> you know, like Sellers Park is just... Yeah. Shit. Well. <laughs> How many FA Cup semi-finals have been played at Ewood Park? None. Too many. That's why it's in, that's yeah. why it's in such a state. The greatest, and the greatest semi-final was played at, at Villa Park. Well, that, that, that doesn't exactly narrow it down. Which one? Palace beating Liverpool. The Palace, yeah, I thought you might say that one. Was that 4-3 or 5-4? 4-3. 4-3, it? Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, we should probably get away from talking about that because it'll get a little bit heated. Fucking dirty blue-nosed cunts fucking back in their fucking hole. Um, <laughs> Ugly Kid Joe got a couple of new songs out this week as well, which I thought were, um, were pretty good. And I love the fact their new album is called Rad Wings of Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I got a bit fair piece of that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that shouldn't be as funny as it is. I, it's, I, I, it, it made me piss myself when I first saw it, but um, Whitfield Crane is like a, he's like a diehard, massive priest family, so I think that's obviously where it comes from, but Fair play to them. But the, the couple of songs that were out this week are good. Really good. So, um, yeah, I urge people to listen because, you know, why not? Why shouldn't they still be relevant? Um, a little bit of controversy. Uh, new Skid Row song as well out this week. And myself and Ant had a little bit of a discussion about this earlier. Um, but I like it. I think the vocalist is really good. Um, I know of his previous band anyway, a Swedish band called Heat. Um, but I think it works really well. I think the song's good. I think his vocals are good, and it and it actually sounds like Skid Row should sound. Like, go on, you go on. You have, have yeah, no, so it's all right. It's, it's all right. It's solid enough. Um, I do wonder what kind of um, permissions they've got for the um, building destructions behind them. <laughs> um, no, it's it's all right. It's hard rock. It's solid stuff, but it's. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like I say, I, I that first album is a classic, and I'll always have a soft spot for back as a result. You're 100 percent right. The first album is an absolute classic. It's it's an underrated classic, if anything. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it's a bit like Sepultura and Max Cavalera, I suppose. That you know, Skid Row have, have carried on plodding on as they are with various different singers over the years. I know, but I think this guy's got got the right type of voice. And it and it works. Look, they're not going to be they're not going to be headlining massive arenas anytime soon like they used to. And I'm sure if Sebastian Bach came back to Skid Row, they would play much bigger venues. But I think it would be very disappointing if he did, because he's a bit of a joke. So I can kind of see why they wouldn't want to have to end anything to do with him. So, but yeah, you're right. The first album is it's it's a classic and it's underrated as far as I'm concerned. So um Netflix are doing a three-part documentary on Woodstock 99 um, and it's called Clusterfuck. 
which is which is pretty apt. I mean, for anybody listening who's 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 younger or whatever and isn't aware of Woodstock '99, it was supposed to be a rebirth of of Woodstock Festival thirty years after the original event, celebration of music. There was a lot of new metal bands and Metallica played and all this kind of stuff, and it was very badly organised. The, the weather it was extreme heat. There was no water. And the place got out of control and it turned into basically a war zone. And I watched um I watched a documentary on Sky Arts a few weeks ago about it. And it's it's got to be one of the biggest abominations I think you'll ever witness. And it, it did literally become a war zone. You know, women were being sexually abused in front of crowds of men, everything was being set fire to, no one had access to water, it was you know, an absolute fucking disgrace. So I think this documentary would probably be worth watching. That is probably one of the most inappropriate titles. You probably documentary considering what happened. Yeah. Um during, well, I think I think Woodstock. this is something that we can we can touch upon. Um I mean, but I think basically what the organizer organizers were obviously trying to do was not just appropriate the name, but appropriate create like the ethos and it doesn't work with the kind of music that they had there no you know there's a very much, big difference there's, there's a very big difference between Limp Biscuit and Crosby, Stills and Nash yeah you know they're not um, Jefferson Airplane they're not Hendrix coming on at five in the morning ripped to the tits on acid with acid tabs sewn into his headscarf so he was still tripping one on stage and yeah. and just jamming for 40 minutes it's a completely di- different ethos um so and also what the, the original woodstock was not without its um you know problems like no, you know no, the no, infamous no. stories about the uh the acid tabs that are going around that were way too strong and they were warned if you see an acid tab that's got this picture on it don't take it it's too yeah. strong people are people are having really bad trips you know the the sanitary conditions the rain the mud um the fact that the stage looked like it was put together with like plasterboard you know stuff like that and the fact that was it was it three hundred thousand people turned up, but they were only expecting like fifty or something. Yeah, but that but was at the same that time. Was the 60s, so it was it was more. Yeah, but at the time. same time, Woodstock represents something. It represent it, it Woodstock to the sixties is what Clash of the Titans was to eighties thrash. It, it it was the swan song. It never got bigger than Clash of the Titans for thrash. And the 60s is summed up in basically the Woodstock because after that you've got 1970, you've got a different different decade. Um, and then also look at the bands that played Woodstock. A lot of them died very soon after. Yeah, yeah. Notably Hendrix. Whereas 99, what was it? What was it marking? What was it bringing in? It was it was a it was a cash grab. Um, but mind you though, the the, the lineup it was it. Metallica, Megadeth, Rage Against Machine, the Cranberries played. Um, with Manson play, Marilyn Manson. I, 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 I'm not sure. I mean, you had you had all sorts. You did have there was a mix of genres. You had like there was, yeah, yeah, and, and all kinds of stuff like that as well. But obviously, you know, Fred Durst got blamed, didn't he, for a lot of the violence and, and stuff like that, which is complete bollocks because it was it was already rising up long before Limp Bizkit got their hands on it. Mm. Um, they'd already had a Woodstock in 94 which yeah. wasn't a problem yeah that was that was the 25th anniversary and that was right right yeah. in the middle of a whole you know alternative stuff but I think so they, and, and yeah. Padre yeah you're right we'll come back to this from a cultural point of view at another time because it, it can it can get into something bigger but the kind of the kind of youth and the kind of subculture that was into that kind of music at the tail end of the 90s in America 
I don't really want to just, you know, paint people with a certain brush the, the way they acted, but it, I don't know, it, it was almost like the wrong kind of people and it was the wrong attitudes and it was all too chest beating fucking... All right, all listen to this, right? You no. Know? This is on Wikipedia. This is some of the, these are some of the acts that played on Woodstock. So July the 23rd to Friday, James Brown, Sheryl Crow, DMX, Bush, Corn, The Offspring, Jamaraquai. That's on the East stage. The West stage was a little bit more alternative. Um, Buck Cherry lit Insane Clown Posse, The Roots, George Clinton and the uh, Funk All Stars. Uh, then there's an emerging artist bar, uh, artist stage, and Moby was playing on that. July the 24th, Kid Rock, Wycliffe John, Alanis Morissette, Metallica, Razor Machine, Limp Biscuit, Counting Crows, West Stage, Everclear, Ice Cube, The Chemical Brothers. Well, that's very eclectic. Uh, and then the last day, uh, East Stage, Willie Nelson, Elvis Costello, Creed, Red Hot Chili Peppers. West Stage, uh, Rusted Roof, Collective Soul, Seven Dust, Godsmack. No wonder people rioted. <laughs> and um, headline, Megadeth. And, yeah, I mean, that is a really eclectic. I mean, look at look, look, look at that um, that East Stage on the July the 24th. I mean, Limp Bizkit, Rage Against Machine, and then Metallica, back to back. Yeah. I mean, not Limp Bizkit, but... I'd pay a lot of money to see Rage Against Machines like go on before Metallica. I bet that was a good. Um, but even if you um, even if you take our opinions of Limp Bizkit out of the equation from a from a commercial point of view and a festival lineup point of view, those three bands at that time that was yeah. massive. So, if I if I was if I was eighteen again because I was eighteen in nineteen ninety nine and I was at a festival and Limp Bizkit were playing, I would have gone to have seen them. I would have then tried to scratch my own face off, but I would have gone to see them. But then again, I think Limp Bizkit, because of Fred Durst, is just a really easy band to rag on. Too easy. It's like shooting rats in a barrel, really. Yeah. They, they've always had a really good live, live reputation, though, and I, I think I saw them at the Sonosphere, you know, years after the fact, and they were entertaining. They, they, they're good at what they do. It's just... I think that's why, the way a lot of people look at them. Now, they're a party band, aren't they? It's, it's that yeah. kind of... Now, you know what you're going to get with a Limp Bizkit live show. We'll be entertained and he'll say stupid things, but it, it'll be fun. So that's why they're, I think that's why they're still playing now because there will always be a market for that kind of thing, festivals and whatnot. People will always enjoy it. So, I mean, they were playing Limp Bizkit with Dan Playback in this year. They've only pulled out because Durst is ill. What the hell is going through the heads of the organisers of Vakken? I mean, that is like... That's like me going into the Blue Mosque in uh, Istanbul eating a bacon sandwich. I mean, come on. That is just offensive. To, 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 to desecrate that sacred ground of Vakken with that shit. Guarantee you they would have drawn a massive crowd. I don't care. I don't. Should we move on to the, uh, to the, the big topic in hand this evening? Um, so we're going to talk about the working class roots of heavy metal. Now it might get a little bit highbrow and a little bit intellectual at times, um, but we'll, um, myself and Anthony, will do our best to, to rein Padre in a little bit because he, he will run with this. But, you know, everyone knows the history of Black Sabbath. 
and the uh, and and the working in the factories in the late sixties, and and obviously that led to you know Black Sabbath forming. But this goes a little bit deeper than that, and and we'll we'll look at it from a from various points of view and different bands and the class structure in Britain over the years and things like that. So I will sit back for a minute and and let Padre have his have his opening statements as to why we're discussing this in the first place and what it all means. So the floor is yours. Well, I think one of the reasons we're discussing this is because there are there are themes which run through history and there are echoes that we can listen for, detect, that consistently keep cropping up. And especially in a country like the UK, class is still a relevant facet of our day-to-day lives. Um, it defines where we come from. It, our accents give our class away, our educational backgrounds. The way we're, we're perceived by the establishment in the UK is very much linked to our perceived class, as it were. And while we can talk about social mobility and upward mobility, there's still very much an intransigence in the, the UK class system that the class that you're born into is the class that you will remain in. And it's something that I think a lot of people who aren't from the UK fail to really understand how much it permeates UK culture, UK history, UK um, society. So, I mean, it's definitely something that's worth talking about. So, I mean, my first question would be to you guys, how do you define working class? How, in, your, in your mind, how would you define what, a work, what, what, what is the working class? What is a working class person? Do you consider yourself to be working class or from a working class background? Yes. I'm, I'm middle class. My parents were working class, but I'm middle. Based on what? Um, my understanding of working class, um, which is, I think, from a definition point of view, it's more related to blue-collar jobs, manual work, low-skilled, semi-skilled, uh, pink-collar as well, um, which I, sp- I suppose my parents weren't. Um, certainly when I was a kid, I was a kid. Oh, I don't know. Is nursing, is nursing pink collar? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I suppose it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my dad, my dad, my dad grew up working class, but he was, he was white collar all his life. But, um, although I haven't said that mum, mum had certain white collar jobs as well. So she was, she did, she did various things, but I think my, my parents were very typical of sort of the boomer generation who were working class and benefited from a lot of socialist upheavals that allowed them to get into the middle class by the 70s and the 80s um but yeah i can't i can't really consider myself working class simply because of my my own history that's an interesting way of looking at thing because you know i, I mean I, I look back on, on my youth and i mean I, I would consider myself working class but at the same time my very young my very young years my dad was still um, a naval officer so you know, the fact he was officer level in the forces, you can kind of, you can almost attribute that to a little bit of middle class as well. But in late, in my later youth, you know, once he left the Navy and went on to do normal jobs, I, I would consider us a working class family. My mum 
was um was like a ward assistant in hospitals uh and my, my dad was uh well my dad was a car salesman so uh, that that's that's working class these days I, I would probably be more leaning towards the middle class i suppose because i have a senior management role at work so if, if we're going to define it a lot of time by the type of employment you're in by and like you said white collar blue collar I am probably middle class in that sense. But working class, working class to me is like Anne said, it's, it's unskilled to medium skilled, hourly paid, working to a salary, you know, working the hours you get paid for. That's, that's what I would consider working yep. classes. Well, I think if you look at, if you look at the um, census information and how they, uh, how they classify the different, classes and this is kind of quite quite an innocuous way of doing it because it kind of overlooks the kind of social and um p- political problems that go can go with it or even health and dietary problems as well so you've got a to e as a classification so e is state pensioners because they're not working anymore casual and low-grade workers unemployed with state benefits only or unemployed with state benefits then you've got d which is semi-skilled and unskilled manual workers so there's someone working in a shop for example then you've got c2 which is skilled manual workers so that to that to me c2 and d when i think of the working class that's what i think of morely more so moreover the c2 the skilled men or the skilled women, nurses, mechanical fitters, engineers, mechanics, people that have got um, a trade, carpenter, plumber, electrician, you know, these people, they they go to the technical colleges, they do an apprenticeship, they they get a job, they might work for themselves, they might work for a building company, they might work on the production line for Rolls Royce or for Vauxhall. Or they might work as a geriatric nurse in a hospital, like my mom used to do. Or they might work in a factory as a, a hydraulic fitter, like my dad used to do before he retired or before he became a health and safety person. And I think a lot of people think about that in terms of it's skilled manual labour, not managerial, not white collar. Now, the, the rank above that would be C1, which is super, supervisory, clerical, junior management, administrative, and then what's regarded as being professional. So that's people with A-levels, people with a university degree, people like te- uh, teachers, doctors, um, people like yourself, Trigenzo, who are supervisory and managerial. Then you, then the, above that, you've got B, which is intermediate managerial, administrative and professional. That's people like your general practitioners, GPs, dentists, people that have got a kind of a higher level of education, maybe like an MD or a master's degree. Um, And then above that, you've got higher managerial, administrative and professional. That's A. So that's basically CEOs, bank, you know, people like bank managers, uh, people that, you know, are probably earning over 100,000 a year. And in terms of how you then use this, is you can say that, for example, from 1961 to 2015, these kind of brackets have changed position. 
So if you look at, for example, in the ninety at the, the start of the nineteen seventies, the percentage of UK households which were regarded as being ABC one was under thirty percent, whereas the percentage of households that were C two and down, C two D and E, was around seventy percent. Now, if you look at up to twenty ten, and this is coming from Ipsos Mori, so this is a, a um, quantified source. The ABC one category rises to over fifty percent, whereas the C two DE low skill skilled worker falls to below forty. So there's been a shift over the past forty years. Now the time frame that we want to talk about today is the 1970s. So we're going to be talking about a time of a time in the UK where 30% of people, um, sorry, 70% of people are either unskilled or skilled. And we're talking about people who were working in what was left of the manufacturing industry, the miners, the car workers, the people in the heavy industry factories, the shipbuilders, the dockers. The, you know, even the postman, the train driver, the people that were working in the nationalized industries as well, because that's a, that's a very important thing to think about that. We're talking about a time here where a lot of industry in the UK was nationalized. It wasn't private. So where does this all come from? I think you've got to go back to start in the 1700s and you start seeing the Industrial Revolution. OK, and then you see a merchant class emerging. And the emergent, the emergent class are the, are the first class who are coming from down below. They're gaining some money. You link that with the age of enlightenment in the 1700s and the, the, the slow rejection of existing power structures. You've got the French Revolution. You've got the um, uh, American Revolution and then the American Declaration of Independence and this idea of individual liberty, social justice. And then you see institutions from then, from that point, start being formed to help the underprivileged, okay, um, and to support unskilled people. And the the if the first idea of kind of collective bargaining and things. Then we jump forward to 1945, which is the first real seminal moment, I think, which is when you've got the first, uh, so the, the first government after World War II, the Attlee government, and we got NHS, child support, welfare state. It's all based on the on the findings of the Beveridge Report, which was published during World War II, which said that society needed to support people. There needed to be a safety net. People needed to pay tax to support it. And this is one of the reasons why we see that shift in poverty reducing, people changing, classes some form of upward social mobility. Would you agree with that? Is that would you say that's a fair assessment of maybe they say the last twenty or thirty years? based on what you what your own personal experience has been i think it's um we now live in a society where there's more opportunity for people to move up those class levels there's, you know to, to to better yourself if you want to call it that or or you know to, to get a better job there's just more opportunity these days so that that is that's naturally going to shift but we know that's not necessarily it's not all been done in a good way no as much as there's not. parents who said you know i've been doing this all my life but i want you to go you know i'd like you to go to university and do well at school and do something that isn't in a factory yeah. in the old days it would have been like you're coming to work with me in the factory or down the mine that changed at some point i don't know maybe the 70s possibly but certainly you know we know we know the 70s had a massive effect on on um 
on attitudes towards unions and the working class. And one of Thatcher's goal was to, you know, change the UK from a manufacturing 70% sort of um, base to, to a services country. Um, so you're, you're almost in this position where once you kill off the coal mines and car manufacturing, but, you know, if, if the youth want to work, they've got no choice but to go into white collar roles or, yeah. or finance or whatever. So, you know, for good or bad, she got what she wanted. Um, and those figures certainly prove it. I think the, the the thing you said about parents wanting their children to go into something better than they did when they were younger, that's that's a key point because it almost, and obviously times have changed. There is no you know mining industry and, and, and whatnot now, but that, that almost puts a downer on what they did and that's why they want their kids to do better, that they immediately think that a white-collar job is better than a blue-collar job, purely because it earns more money. But, you know, in the, in the 70s, if you had a strong trade, you could have made a very good living. You can make a very good living now if you've got the right trade. If you've got the right trade, yeah, yeah. But To see things maybe changing a bit or shifting, just shifting a bit backwards because, you know, the discourse now about people leaving university with... Yeah, Mickey Mouse quote marks degrees. Yeah. They can't get jobs and everything's so ridiculously expensive now. Um, and there's a because kids have to stay at school till 18, they have to do A levels or they can do apprenticeships in the trade. And you're seeing more of that, people go into trades um, from a young age. I, I the question I asked myself just now is with technology being what it is, you've got a lot of people out there who have got who are skilled labor in in technology, in manufacturing, but they're very skilled. So they're not really white, they're blue collar. I mean, not white collar, but their skills command high money. So, you know, do, does it does there need to be a new class um, code for people like them? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just to give you some more facts and figures, for example. The again, this is coming from Ipsos Mori. Again, going back to 1970, the uh, the number of jobs people in jobs that you would uh again using that a to c a to e classification so the number of c1 jobs has kind of fluctuated from 1970 20 to 10 really around the 25 30 percent mark but the number of b jobs has risen so more and more people are moving into those higher managerial jobs and the number of c2 jobs the kind of skilled manual labor has definitely fallen from over 30% down to under 20%. So that shows quite a shift. And I think one of the, one of the reasons for those shifts is that it's this, like you said, it's the aspiration, but it's also an aspiration is fine, but if you haven't got the means to achieve it, then it's very difficult. And I think you do see now more, more and more people go to university and, um, were you the first person in your family to go to university? I was. Yep. So was I. I. I think I was. I don't know. I think there was. I think my, there, there, there's an element of upper class um, on my mum's side that I think went the other way um, or drifted off somehow. And I think someone did get a, that way. But certainly my direct lineage, I think I was, yeah. Okay, so in a podcast about working classes, I never want to hear the word lineage ever again. <laughs> And what are you going to start talking about next? Eugenics, breeding? No, they 
They, darling, they don't have the right blood, darling. No, no, they don't have it in the blood like us. Dear God. Seriously. But let's, 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 at least, um, let's at least take this back to, uh, to heavy metal then, because that is what we're going to talk about at the end of the day. So yeah. go, back to, um, go back to the early days of the 70s then and, and where all this kind of begins from a metal point of view. And well, what I'd like to, what I'd like to do first is just, 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 just give you some... Uh, just give you some historical gloss here. If you study sociology or um, politics or history at university, you, you'd normally will come across a book called the, the Making of the English Working Class by E.P. Thompson, which I did read at university, and it's a damn good book. Um, and he talks about the formation of the working class, class consciousness, and the culture of the English proletariat up the poles. Um, but one of the things that I, and I've, I've kind of dug out some stuff and looked over it and looked at some other articles from metal studies because there's a lot of there's a lot about this in metal studies the academic um school that i've only recently come to know about so there's 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 a imagine that this has been two sides of the same coin um again going back you've got the industrial revolution okay and you've got you're you're moving from a time where there's lot men most people live in the countryside and then all of a sudden they're they're being put into a position where they have to kind of move to this to the cities and when they move to the cities they find themselves that the skills that they've bought from the countryside aren't really relevant to what they're going to have to do in the cities to make ends meet um and they feel uprooted they're unskilled they're in, and because of this they're impoverished and they're threatened and the industrial revolution you can argue is a time where the psychic world that these people lived in, the kind of the, the, the way they perceive things, the mental world, is filled with violent images, hellfire, revelation. They're moving into the you know the great smoke, you know, these massive cities, they're living in these workhouses, they're being, you know, um treated like almost like pack animals, like you know, they're working 16 hours a day to make ends meet. And it's a world that's and this idea that they have in their head is then mirrored in their real world which is filled with poverty and oppression and a lot of the stuff i've read is is basically saying that you could actually use that description just as aptly to describe the 1960s and 1970s midlands in east london and that same um uh reality was there for people because what you have in the 1970s at the beginning of the 1970s is really it's not a process of industrialization it's a process of deindustrialization which is what anthony was saying about moving the economy from a manufacturing economy to a service economy now when you do that ultimately people are going to move people are going to lose out and the 1970s we see the first generation of young men who didn't have a job to go to after school and then what are they going to do with themselves and this, this is where you see heavy metal actually become a, a bona fide working class subculture. And this is where Sabbath and Priest and Maiden and Led Zeppelin and a lot of the other bands all come from Deep Purple. They're all from the same kind of socioeconomic background. And if you look at the, the kind of what's going on in the 1970s you've got immigration mass immigration from the the, uh, the caribbean in in the uk or you've got second generation of of those immigrant immigrants being born and it's putting pressure on social services you've got the oil crisis 
because of the wars in the Middle East. Stagflation, which is when you have recession and inflation at the same time, which I think, unfortunately, what we're heading towards too. Um, Labour disputes every day, all the time, three-day week. I mean, a lot of younger people might not know this, but if you talk to your parents or your grandparents, they'll tell you about the time where everyone in the UK had to turn the lights off at a certain time because there was no electricity, because there was no coal, because the miners were on strike. And this brought down the Heath government in 1973. And then you've got the kind of um, evolution and more kind of pushing to the front of women's rights, which a lot of working class men would have found threatening because what you're doing is when you're moving people from a production-based economy to a service-based economy, the, the traits that are required to succeed in a service economy are things such as personal hygiene, the way you present yourself, self-presentation, you're, you're talking about emotional labor in terms of things like customer service administration, whereas just opposed to the kind of classic labor of like, you know, working in a factory, having a skill, using your hands, sweat, hard work. Okay. That's in, in a lot of people's views, that's masculine. Whereas those other traits were, were viewed as feminine, but now people are being expected to move into those jobs and they find themselves kind of in a kind of a a person like a stranger in a strange land to to use a Iron Maiden um, reference. Um, this is this is the basis of why you see this is why people are disenchanted. This is why people are feeling disenfranchised. So this is why you start seeing people move towards or form bands or form. Look to form a subculture, because why do you form a subculture? It's because if you're not succeeding in in the society in which you live, you form a subculture that where you can then impose your own criteria for success. Now, if you're working in a factory or you're working in an office five days a week and you hate your job and you're not succeeding at it, there can be those two days a week where you're playing in your band and you are God. And you succeed because it's the, you're succeeding based on the criteria that you have decided upon. And I think that's a lot of metal. That, that goes to speak to a lot of what we've seen in heavy metal in terms of the aesthetic, the values, the, um, the way that it's really kind of a, an island of lost toys, as it were. Like the, the kind of the, the, the pariahs get sucked into it because they don't fit into those other shoeboxes of. Uh, mainstream society so before we move on thoughts on that as he drinks his beer uh, <laughs> yeah um i think it's worth mentioning i think some of some of what you mentioned in terms of those early groups forming was was in the 60s um i'm not quite my 60s knowledge on on political history isn't maybe that great i'm not sure there was there was, you had the union trouble and the deindustrialization to the same scale in the 60s as you did in the 70s so obviously when those bands formed and got together in, in the wake of the Beatles were we quiet at that particular level um I think the 60s was what it was you know you had you had artists you know the the, the swinging 60s it, there, there was a potentially a different drive and a different motivation 
um, for some of those youngsters. And I can speak, I can speak from what I know from my dad. I mentioned in the past, my dad um, used to be in a band with Jeff Beck uh, very early on in the 60s when he was younger, um, before Beck became famous. And my dad went down the white collar route and whatnot. But he 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 went to a lot of gigs in South London, saw a lot of these bands playing, you know, Stones, The Kinks, all of this. Um, and it was maybe it was a different culture at, um, at that point in terms of in terms of motivation. Um, but certainly, yeah, by the seventies, when a lot of those bands, and of course, I don't think it was just metal bands. I think um, you can look at the pub rock bands and maybe the punk punk rock bands as well. Uh, was definitely um, definitely impacted by that. Yeah, this is this is not just this is not just in heavy metal. There's no, there's yeah. lots of different. I mean, you can go back to the fifties and talk about mods and rockers and yeah. Um, teddy boys and things like that. There's um, okay. there, there's there's an element of rebellion to it, isn't there? It, that's, it's almost like like you were talking about, you know, in a shit job for five days a week, and then you know you, you, you rip off your suit at the end of the week and you go and play in your metal band, and and not only have you got that feeling of of being on a on a higher plane and feeling like a god for. A couple of hours a night, but you are all you you're rebelling against everything you do and everything you're expected to stand for. So, and that that but that that would go more towards punk and metal than it would any other sort of genre of music, I think. Because yeah, I, I think anyway, I I think I I don't think it's very useful for for people to characterize, for example, listening to metal as you know rebellion because who's deciding that you're a rebel is it are you saying it yourself is it the subculture saying it it's, it's itself or is it is it the the powers above it that are saying you're rebelling against us and it's usually it's the powers above that are saying it. the way i view it or what what's what's given me a perspective on from doing a lot of this reading is that it's it's not necessarily people rebelling, it's people looking for a place where they can be judged on how they want to be judged, rather than based on what society considers to be success or acceptable. Yeah, so no, yeah, I, don't, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. So, like, and I, I think it goes back to I'm I'm going to I'm going to touch on this later, but it it kind of talks about like things like authenticity. And uh, why do metal bands do, do metal bands dress the same as their fans, or do the fans dress the same as the bands? Does that lend it lend a certain amount of authenticity? And you have to have authenticity to survive in the metal subculture. Yeah, you know. So, um, but this this thing I said about when I was talking about a parallel, the parallel I wanted to make was that around the turn of the nineteenth century, when you've got People again, more mass migration to the cities. What you see is there seems to be a very strong uh, movement and of doomsayers, false prophets, preachers. This idea of the apocalypse is coming, based on the fact of their physical environment being one of smoke and fume and heavy machinery and being cramped into really distasteful living accommodation and one one of the things that popped up was uh i found um 
that there was a person called Zion Ward, who was a shoemaker, <laughs> who believed he was Christ. This is in about 1831, but that he had once been Satan. So he, he thought he used to be Satan, but then he changed and he was Christ. But apparently his lectures, his preaching used to attract over 2000 people per per sermon during the summer of 1831 until he was eventually found guilty of blasphemy and he was imprisoned. Now, this is the parallel. The doomsayers in the 1830s are basically in the 1970s, people like Black Sabbath and Priest and Maiden because they're talking about this kind of abstract concept of kind of impoverishment and disenchantment and disenfranchisement and the fact that they're being oppressed by a higher power. And if you think about it as well, when they've spoken out and they've, they've written songs, what's happened to them? They've been oppressed. They've been, they've been taken to court. They've been sued. They've been had, they've had labels. They've been tried to, you know, put a, a gag on them to stop them because they what the establishment has viewed them as being dangerous or pervasive or pernicious or um, a threat to the young people. You know, like it's like you know what they're saying. Oh, they they're devil worshippers. You know, it's and and again, you, you see this throughout history, and this is where a lot of the stuff for the witch craze came from in the in the in the early modern period. I'm not going to start getting on that, but and with all this. When you consider all of this, one of the things that also I found interesting was that despite the higher album sales, the larger audiences, in terms of like from a sociological perspective, metal has been regarded as the poor cousin of punk because punk has always been considered to be more political than metal because of where it comes from is being perceived as being a radical agent of social change, confronting hegemonic culture and the supporting social system around it and while metal can't do that because apparently all metal does is dwell in the mystic world of demons apocalypse imaginations and biblical prophecy well this is what i want to talk about now is why why does metal dwell on this and what does it actually mean because i might i what i'm going to argue is that whereas punk might be more political in terms on the surface on a semantic level on a pragmatic level metal is just as political they just don't use the same vocabulary because what are they talking about let's think of a song what black sabbath song do you can you think of that you would say that god that is really kind of like political but it's also about like witches and things like that demons second album is war pigs war pigs yeah yeah of course it is yeah Okay, What's then think of like Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden and Seven Gates of Hell by Venom. Okay, what what's the message of War Pigs? The generals are like you know witches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know it's um, and they're bringing death and destruction. And these are like big big ideas and things and powers that we can control, and that they're they're the reason why we have death and destruction and war and pestilence and famine and poverty. Okay, it's just the way that Black Sabbath talk about poverty and war and destruction is in is in is through the lens of Satan on the occult. But that doesn't mean to say that they're not being political. They're just using a different mode of delivery, and they they're talking about 
and it's the same with priests and it's the same to some extent with maiden and how, how about this metal tells stories punk um tells fiction yeah okay so what i'm talking yes just yeah i think you're right now basically what i'm talking about is this this, this concept of, that's called reification okay reification is the sense of being or is the sense of being at the mercy of processes that are absolute and overwhelming in their consequences yet invisible and impersonal now go back to the end of the beginning of the 1970s what would these what would be these kind of invisible and impersonal forces that you can control well you're growing up in birmingham you're growing up in in the midlands in a mining community and you're your mine is being shut down. Your factory's been shut down. Uh, people are on the dole. They haven't got any money. They're struggling to find food. And they're living in a council house that's quite squalid. The invisible things would be things like deindustrialization, globalization, Reaganomics that you mentioned earlier. Not, not, not necessarily in the, in the 1970s, but what we regard as being neoliberal economics. Okay, and this influences the way heavy metal depicts social forces. Now, the way punk depicts social forces is more on, you know, on point. It's more um, matter of fact, whereas the way metal depicts social forces is through this idea of power destruction, the inhuman, the supernatural, things that cannot be comprehended, much less resisted. Okay, and what it does is it expresses the powerlessness of people in the face of these socioeconomic forces, which you just can't control. You can't stop them you only have to just go along with it and it's this idea goes back to things like Marx and Engels and the German poet Goethe Goethe wrote the poem the sorcerer's apprentice and this is the idea of the sorcerer conjuring up the demon and then they can't control them and that's a lot that's a theme that you see a lot in in the in the lyrics of Black Sabbath and I want to say the first thing the first direct example I can give you is listen to the song Lord of this world listen to the lyrics and that's basically what reification is um it describes how people make things and they that will become their masters and they're selling their soul to a higher power okay and you can also see things like reification i mean uh, for example megadeth were all about it on the first two albums songs like the conjuring um things like uh behind um looking down the cross and you can also think about this is also a very common theme that's gone all the way through metal and you can see it really reach the crux of it where you've got there's two sides to this there's the, the, the black sabbath and the judas priest and the i made on the 1970s saying we're going to sing about the occult and we're going to sing about mysticism and prophecy and things like this and we're going to say it in a way that we can't control it but then the other side is that you've got bands that have indeed experimented with the occult in order to gain power or get revenge on authorities or peers now, what does that sound like? Which genre of metal does that sound like? Using a, the occult and mysticism to get revenge on authorities. Black metal. Black metal, yes, exactly. So, you, okay, rather than sing about the devil's coming to get me, sing about the fact that you're on the side of the devil and that you're going to bring down the system. So, and then that's 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 the other side of reification. Okay. Um and again, like you know, a lot of it comes back with this. This stuff come all comes from Black Sabbath, because it's the the the, the name of the band, 
the um, where they're coming from, the 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 area they lived in. It was very uh, same with Judas Priest, same with I Made in the East End of London. Um, but speaking of I Maiden, they're a little slight different twist on this because their first two albums, they kind of cultivated an urban street tough image um, that was drawn from the punk movement. Dianio was more of a punk front man. You, you could argue. I don't know if you would agree with that. I would agree then, with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then Derek Riggs that you created Eddie kind of created Eddie in the sense that he's a zombie, but he, he represents the youth and he's being wasted away by the forces of society. Yeah. But how does, how is Eddie presented in the first two al- uh, albums? He's got like a street jacket on, he's on the streets. He's not like, he's not a Pharaoh. He's not a trooper. He's just like, you know, on the cover of Running Free, Sanctuary, Women in Uniform. It's this kind of like street smart kind of punk ethos that they've got. Riggs, and then finally... Riggs was punk as well. He wasn't metal. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was a punk. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah. And then finally, when you talk about the aesthetic of metal, we come on to Judas Priest. Because where Sabbath really drive the sound, Iron Maiden contribute to the sound, but they also contribute to the aesthetic. Um, and they also contribute to this idea of using kind of like kind of historical themes, um, political um, kind of mysticism and the occult to talk about um, social forces that you can't control that are kind of oppressing you. Priest did a lot of that, but they're, they're really the band that give you the, the aesthetic style, the leather, the, 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 the sadomasochistic kind of um, dress style. And the a lot of the fashion themes that we see then go through the 80s because a lot of those 80s bands were Judas Priest fans, and then you see the spikes and the leather and everything. So <clears throat> I would say that would be for me, that is the basis of why heavy metal comes from the working class portion of society. Because I and if you look at what's called cultural sociology, you'll find that the, the common idea is that the middle classes do not produce subcultures subcultures all come from the working class and there are there are, there are numerous studies that you can cite on this and it's not just metal it's it's punk it's grime it's rave um you can look at different stages of um subcultures so for example the um rave scene in the 1980s was a kind of reaction to Thatcher's draconian social laws or social values. Punk and metal both come up in the 70s. They're a reaction to that kind of the the changing social structure in the 1970s and the poverty. Um, And even in the 1960s, it's the hippies and they're rebelling against the social values of their parents because they've got different social values. So there's all, and and this is coming from the ground up. This is not coming from a top-down perspective. Um, and I think that is basically my uh, my take on it. Thank you for listening, everyone. Um, we'll um, because that was four hours ago we started, and uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll see you next week. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna tell you what, can I can I try, I'll try and summarize that? I actually found uh, found an article, but I'm gonna quote from for once. Um, yeah, a medium article by a chap called uh, Corey Hugh Heiberg. Um, article was called Heavy Metal Crossing Borders because I was I was I wanted to know more see if I could do more in, um, research on South American popularity and see how if, how relevant it was but I didn't really find enough to 
quite get me get my teeth into but it was a short article but um there was a particular sentence that struck me and i think summarizes what you've just done um padre and the quote is this um heavy metal earns its place in cultural relevance because of its striking ability to encapsulate the frustrations of a seemingly faceless attacks on economic stability disparaging decline in social status by the middle class and the growing gap in wealth stratification mm -hmm. yeah just struck just struck me uh, when i read that i mean what i will say just to, to add a few sorry just to add a few more points and i do agree with what you said um heavy metal if you think about it from the aesthetic and some of the other um appropriations of heavy metal so heavy metal appropriated like the kind of the long hair look of the hippies from the 1960s and the kind of sexual freedom but rejected their kind of world peace values and their kind of uh, love and understanding you know uh, uh, values however along with punk it shunned the utopian dreams of Woodstock okay um, and it's very similar to like the Hells Angels in the USA who were, who were rebellious but they were characterised as you know hyper masculine and patriarchal militaristic xenophobic fear of, fear of racial and sexual difference um, I think that you could use that to, to, to justify or to, to, to explain some of the, the things that were there at the start of the, the formation of the heavy metal subculture. But I, I, the other thing as I was going to say is that one of the things that is really cemented in the first early years of heavy metal is this idea of there has to be a transaction between the crowd and the band the crowd has to be getting something and the band has to be getting something. And what you see is this comes together really with live albums like The Song Remains the Same, Live After Death, Judas Priest's uh, Electric Eye. Um, is that, you know, that more and more the, 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 the fans were just as much a part of the music video or the live show as the band were. So, for example, you know, look at Live After Death. How many times does Bruce say "Scream for me"? He's, he's interacting with the with the with the um, with the band, and it's just like this idea that um, the, the 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 band were having to give the fans what they wanted in terms of music and style and interaction, or they wouldn't be considered authentic. And you look at some of the lyrics from some of the the bands, like. For example, um, Saxon, denim and leather. And they're like, they're singing about like the, 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 the uniform of the scene. And they say like, denim and leather, we're in this together. together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, for example, there's the, there's the Black Sabbath song. Um, I can't find it. I can't remember what it was. It was them. And where they're singing about the fact that they've, even though they've had success, they're still from the streets. So it's like, you know, they're still trying to maintain that authenticity. So they've got that connection with the fans. Going back to the occult, for example, and I thought I thought this was quite interesting. The obsession in the 90, in the early 1980s of heavy metal with Alistair Crowley, Ozzy Osbourne, Jimmy Page bought his house, and then you've got the this idea again of the um, uh, I I Maiden's Moonchild, the the song of uh, Seventh Son. It's always it's and it's the search for the mystical source of empowerment. You know. Um, 
so it, that this again it's this idea of talking about what is pissing you off but you don't know exactly why it's why it what it is you can't put a name to it so you dress up in ideas of um satan and the occult and mysticism as a way of kind of trying to explain it and i think that's something that's happened throughout history when we've got so for example i mean look at look at what's happened over the last couple of years i mean we've got all the crap that's going on at the time and, and, and people people can't explain it like they there's almost like an, if, if you look at Adam Smith, the, the economist, the wealth of nations, and there's that invisible hand. Well, what's the invisible hand pushing? People don't know. So therefore they, they kick back and we get things like we get Brexit and we get we get populism because that, that could, you know, that must be the, the solution to this. You know, I, I want to I kind of want to touch base on the, um, the rejection of a hippie, um, hippie ideal. Yeah. Now, that's that's a big one for me, certainly in in its development, and well, it's the start of of metal as a, as a subgenre. Um, I think at that point, if we, if we look at nineteen seventy as year zero, I think I know we, you know because that's when Sabbath, the first Sabbath album came out. Um, so rock and roll had been around fifteen years by that point, thereabouts. Was metal at that point the first time there had really been a current subculture, current music movement? I, I don't know. I, I, I think subgenre is not the right word at that point because it was too too broad, too unspecified, and I think movement feels more appropriate as a term. Um, was that the first time in popular music culture in those fifty in those fifteen years so far where you'd had? something new as a rejection to something else current because i'm thinking you know you had rock and roll and that evolved into pop and other forms of um you know rock in the 60s but also your, your motowns and your your surf surf pop and stuff it was an evolution it wasn't so much a rejection of what what came before it was more a way of enhancing it but metal you know, it, it, as you said, you, you had the end of the 60s and that hippie dream was it wasn't it wasn't, um, you know, um, sunshine and sunshine. And no, it was never realised, was it? I mean, you have the yeah. summer of love or the, the decade of love. And then, you know, by the time you get to the 1970s, everything that they stood for. Vietnam, the Vietnam War is getting yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah, that's um, you've now got economic problems, so you don't have the standard of living that you had in the sixties that enabled them to sit around all day smoking weed and going to college and not and doing basically sweet fa with their time, um, and or doing what I did and studying useless liberal arts degrees and then coming on a podcast and spouting off about E. P. Thompson and the making of the working class and class consciousness, um, so. Yeah, it's uh, they're, they're rejecting the the kind of yeah. the maybe what's what's regarded as the, the non-masculine elements of it, the non-masculine. I think the um the, the masculinity bit is is a valid one because, and I think this 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 can take us into um into other areas and can take us into the, the growth of, of women in heavy metal and things like that because you talk about Judas Priest, um, Motorhead in particular. <laughs> Maiden or another one, Saxon, there was there was a strong masculine vibe to everything they did, wasn't there? And I know 
you know, I, I you know, obviously Rob Halford and his 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 um his homosexuality and that wasn't wasn't known of in the early days of Judas Priest, but everything was very very masculine. Like you said, working class men in in factories doing manual jobs and then going out and their chest hairs out and their it's all tight clothes and look at me, I've got a massive cock and I'm a real man and. Yeah, know, yeah, it's what it was all about, wasn't it? It was very thrusting and very in your yeah. face. And, 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 and at the same time, it appealed like, to other men more than it did women. Yeah, and at the same time, uh, you know, this um, creating again to quote this this article, an antagonistic opposition to outsiders. So, for example, the the track "United" from the album British Steel, um, which the audience at live performances often sing. Um, and you've got this idea of like, you know, uh, there's an antagonism between two groups and the first verse creates a contrast between like us and them. It's like, look around, they're going to come after us, but they're never going to win because we're together and like, we're not, we're, we're, we're a group. Um, and also the, the song by, um, on killing machine, 1979 take on the world is, is pretty much the same thing. And they, this again, this, and I, and I don't think Sabbath did this as much, but Maiden and Priest definitely did. And I think this is more of a new wave of British heavy metal thing. It's yeah, like yeah, we're a group yeah. or a tribe. Yeah. Metallica and Exodus in the Bay Area bands definitely did it. The whole Metallica thing with the bang the head that doesn't bang. Yeah. You know, normal black, all that kind of stuff. Um, metal militia. Us against them. Yeah. 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 Um, just, just to refer back to that, the Black Sabbath song was Backstreet Kids. From the album Technical Ecstasy, and the line is, "I'm a backstreet rocker, and I will be to the day I die." So, I mean, in 1976, Sabbath. I mean, how much coke were they doing then? <laughs> so, I, I mean, but they're still trying to say, "Look, we're still from the streets of Aston. We're still like you," because that's what's important in metal. It's like the band and the the fans are one of the same. They look like each other. I mean, go and see Metallica now. They're always going on about the Metallica family. You know, um, I made and Bruce does his best to kind of bring everyone in so they can see him and he can reach out to them, and, you know, incorporate the crowd into the songs. Going off on a slight tangent on that, do you think that we've almost come full circle, the fact that now metal fans don't want the bands they love to be rock stars anymore, like we've talked about on episodes before? And, and it's because of this. We've gone all the way up to the extreme of, of Kiss and Aerosmith and all these bands that were massive rock stars and jewellery and massive houses and fast cars and women and all this kind of stuff. Whereas now, no one wants that anymore. They want to almost feel like, as a metal fan, you want to feel like you're on the same level as the bands you love. This is, this is what happened in 91. This, you know, that is why grunge, grunge... You know, killed off cockroach hap- hap- yeah. happened it because yeah. it got to the point where metal had become excessive bloated and, i think bloated yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it was bloated it was excessive it was it was all it was a parody of itself yeah and you know and you know you know it was heavy but you had that punk thing of saying this this doesn't speak to me because funnily enough punk Punk looked to prog rock, but it also looked to the heavy metal denim stuff and said, well, that doesn't speak to me either. You know, life is shit and I'm from the streets as well, but rah, I just want to you know, do this and keep it simple. Uh, grunge did a similar thing for, with, it, with its own history. And yeah, that, that was the kids saying, this, this doesn't speak to me anymore. I, I don't, 
you know, my life isn't the Sunset Strip. I'm not surrounded by hookers and coke and shit. Um, and and the same happened, or or maybe the same will happen. Actually, maybe I'm I'm a bit ahead of myself. But you look at rap and hip hop. That has that has been that has got bloated and excessive, and the and it's going it's going back up, it's going back yeah. to the street and there with grime and and all that. Yeah. Well, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That, yeah. That's so. So maybe it has already happened within itself. Um, I don't know. Maybe there were kids who were saying. I've, I've listened to rap and hip hop and grime and I need something, you know, fresh. I, you know, what are these guitars? What's, you know. The weird dynamic, the thing I find weird about the, the dynamic of grime in particular, certainly from a British point of view is, you know, you'll have like, take for example, you'll have, um, you'll have videos that'll be set in a, in a, a rundown East London council estate or something like that. Yet there'll be, there'll be a Rolls Royce park there or, or something like that. It's almost like they're just still trying to have that element of, of the bling of hip hop and all yeah. that showing us. But look, we are, we are real. We are from a, an East London council estate and, and all of that. So you, you, you can't, you can't mix those two things. It's one or the other. Yeah. You know, you know it's, a Rolls Royce is not going to be parked on a rotty East London council estate. Well, I think, from everything that I've been reading this week, I think what the stuff I've come across would actually disagree with what you're saying. I'm not saying I disagree with that. I'm just saying to give you the, the, the prevailing opinion is that um, subcultures and the, the the artistic content that go with them are no longer predicated on um, a visual. They're not as obvious as they were. Like no. You go back in the 1980s, you walk down, you go to Camden, you're gonna know who's the metaler, who's the punk, who's the mod. Yeah, yeah. Who's the who's the new romantic? Now you don't know because you can't tell anymore because the uniform is not there. I mean, you can see someone wearing a a, a Metallica t-shirt now, and you don't know they've put, they might have bought it in Topshop because yeah. it's a fashion statement. You don't know if they're a metal fan. Yeah. Same as if they're wearing. So it's almost like a kind of like you know couture kind of almost a la carte approach to, to kind of genre because like people can just take stuff off the peg. But the reason why this has happened is because the subcultures now exist online. It's your online persona is what you're recognized as, as part of the subculture, not as your physical persona. So it's almost yeah, like your yeah. avatar. Um, so, so, so for example, subcultures, and again, going back, why, why does it come from Birmingham? Why does metal come from Birmingham and East London and the Midlands and the North and like Newcastle? Because a lot of subcultures are usually localized um, and they're geographical. They're not just cultural. So now you have the phenomenon that you've got um, subcultures exist online. So basically you can have someone that lives in Tunbridge Wells can be into K-pop and be part of that scene, but never have been to Korea. You know, yeah. they're not, they're, it's not on geographical location anymore. And it's not on how you look. It's how, how on how basic and maybe the vocabulary you use or the terms you use or the way you act online or the, the, the sites that you access. What you say about the uniform, the, the uniform almost comes out in more of a, um, in more of an obvious way now at, at, at concerts, festivals and, and things mm. like that. Mm. You know, you now feel like you can go to a festival, like download, like Bloodstock, Rack and whatever. And you're 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 back in your tribe, aren't you? You're part of your, you know, your your element, and you can let go, and you can you can dress in 
you know, little denim hot pants and a, and a sleeveless denim jacket. And, and you, you know, no one's going to judge you for that because you're part of your tribe. Whereas yeah. if you were to walk down the street of a middle-class town dressed like that, people are going to look at you. They didn't look at me. <laughs> think about, think about, um, think going back, go back to the seventies and, and the, and the early eighties and the, and what you've got as being the heavy metal uniform with the, the high tops and the, the pipe jeans and the, the leather and the denim. These are these are very re- relatively cheap clothes to buy. Yeah, yeah. You know, and again, going back to this idea of this is coming from impoverished areas where they don't have a lot of disposable income. Um, you know, they can sew the patches on themselves. You know, they can do the artwork because it's very DIY. Um, again, like you know, thinking about what Steve Hughes was talking about a few months, uh, a few weeks ago. You know, all the all these bands like PJ Harvey in the in the Eurythmics in a basement recording their first album. You know, there was that DIY aspect then that we probably don't have as much now. Um, and e- even though, like, when I mean, we had Tail Gunner on, and they've had that um, Instagram chat recently, and where they, they're reaching out to their fans and they're trying to build their community online and, you know, get their, you know, increase the size of their tribe, their following. And it, that's more going to be people can achieve status online in that environment because now it's not how many patches you've got on your back or how many um, ticket stubs you've got or how many gigs you've seen to it's how many followers do you have on Instagram? Yeah. That's where people are getting the, what's being regarded as a success and a subculture is going to form in order for people to bring their own, um, rules and regulations and, and hierarchies in and on, based on what the rest of society views as deficiencies, their deficiencies within a subculture will be viewed as being meritocracy, meritocratic. And, and I think that's, that's something interesting when you look at um, subcultures. And of course, like in academia, some people have, have, have now rejected this approach and they've come up with their own genre called post-subculture studies. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, so genreism isn't all or only, or subculturism, it only doesn't exist in heavy metal or music. It exists in academia too. Because, and there's actually an, an academic journal called the Post-Subculture Reader, which you can buy, buy for the, the, the low price of about $150. <laughs> Yeah, that's something that's really struck me sort of trying to do research for some of these subjects is the amount of money you've got to pay for some of these journals. And, you know, they, they only exist in very nice hardback books. That are... Don't get me fucking started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's been some I thought, oh, that looks good. $150 for a hardback. Like, if, no. you, if, you, if you go to university, you can get access through your university to something called JSTOR, which is fantastic. Now, if you're one of us peons who aren't in academia anymore or aren't at university or anything, and you just want to, I don't know, download a PDF article from JSTOR on on this, for example, it's going to cost you $50 for one fucking PDF. And you're just like, why can't there be like some kind of like Netflix for, uh, you know, articles? Like, it's gatekeeping. It's gatekeeping. You haven't got the money, so you're not allowed to access this knowledge. Yeah, that's bad. You know, it's like know. which almost go, which almost goes completely against of what we're talking about with the working classes, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, 
but like it's well, it's um, it's like you know you, you haven't got the money, so you're not allowed to like you know access access this, and it's like um, got my fucking point was going to be there. Never mind, move on. I'll come back. Oh, to my it. God, my God, he's lost the words. Big Aura, he's lost the words. I'll have to remember that. What you were saying about um, about social media, though, and like you said, like Tailgunner doing the live Instagram videos and the fans are involved and all that kind of thing. Is that not now just just it's it's the way of it's just the way we are. It's the way they communicate, and it's it's the way fans can now communicate with the band. Whereas back in the day, they might just drink in the same pub. You yeah, know? yeah. Now, definitely. now we're just using social media as that way of of communicating with musicians. You know, it's it's a good way to be able to ask back for kids. They're just getting into the music or whatever it is to ask them, who's your favorite band? Who's your favorite guitar player? Whatever. And, and, it, and, it, and it works. And, and, and fans are going to get satisfaction from that because it feels like they've had an interaction with the bands they love. Yeah. And they're, and they're part of something. So just a, different, just a different delivery, like you said. But how can we summarize all this then? Because it's one thing to uh, to have all these studies and to go on about where it all comes from and what it all means and the occult and all this kind of stuff. But how do, how do we summarize this then? Where... Well, I, I think you basically had certain social and economic conditions in the 90, in the, in the end of the 1960s in the 1970s. I think you had why okay. Why didn't Tony Iommi or Rob Halford take up the violin uh, or the cello? It. And because they, couldn't afford, they couldn't afford it exactly, so they they were obviously interested in music and they wanted to do this and they wanted to get themselves out of it and out of their current um, situation and they viewed music as the best way of doing it. And some of the most accessible music for them was rock music, um, and which didn't need um, a lot of expensive lessons and it didn't take you ten years to master the instrument. And then the only avenue for them is to become like a classical musician and join an orchestra or something like that. And, you know, then therefore you're up against people who have gone to prep schools and public schools and had, you know, music lessons since they were five years old and things like that. And also that, you know, if, if you if, if you come from Aston and you rock up at the, you know, the 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 National Philharmonic, uh, a symphony orchestra, and they're like, oh, oh you know, you're not from... Uh, you know, London, you're from uh, some shitty hole of a working class district in Birmingham. There's that stigma attached to it, isn't isn't there? Yeah. So again, it's this idea of why, why, why would you put yourself in that position where you can be the progenitors, the the at the cutting edge of something where you, you know you and the people around you who like it create it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, can I'm, we say it's metal strength in that regard? Is that it, it's it's one of the best representations of current sociological and economical um, situations at any time. I think something else you can always appreciate, and like I said, they, you know, they couldn't afford to play violins and things like that, so you, you get a cheap guitar from someone. And But you, you look at it, the amount of great guitar players, great drummers, whatever, that we've known over the years that are self-taught, you know, and then they've gone on to become absolute fucking legends. And they are completely self-taught. You know, some of the best musicians to walk this earth did not need lessons to get to that. So it just comes mm. to hard work and commitment and, and wanting to do, you know, having a passion for it, you know? And yes, you can have hundreds of lessons to play the violin and be so proficient with it. You're going to amaze people, but 
there's no passion in that. You may as well go and play in fucking Dream Theater for Christ's sake. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and passion the, that passion and the love for music is what is what carried a lot of them through I think they loved what they were doing so I think that's that's one of the biggest things for me it wasn't you know Tony Iommi didn't pick up a guitar when he was a teenager to make millions it's a bonus that he did but that that was never the intention so that's 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 my two cents he did it for the purely for the love of it and yeah, great. They made loads of money and became massive, but it was never the intention in the first place. Just about being part of something. So there you go. Have you got a closing statement? No, I think I, mean, I think I really, you know, uh, covered everything. Really, I mean, I think one thing I'd like to, uh, I think, I think one thing I think we can come back to another in another episode is we can kind of look more at subcultures and and also the decline of subcultures so like basically you know are subcultures you know in decline are, are they disappearing you know in, and, and is that because you know there's a is there a working class anymore that that's one question that i've come across um one of the um most of the responses are yes but this is the interesting thing is that um the the people that are now considered proper working class are so poor they don't have time to learn instruments they are literally living hand to mouth and working every hour yeah. Yeah. yeah every hour yeah yeah um and that and that is sad um and the people that aren't considered bottom of the you know bottom of the the scale um we we've almost drifted into some kind of like oldest huxley brave new world where we're being controlled by the things we love and one quote i came across which is great is um uh foreign holidays and trips to nando's do not a john lydon make <laughs> you know so and i think you're right i think that's that, that's an accurate quote it's like like we've said before how do people in sweden and in scandinavia of the scandinavian countries kind of come up with such aggressive and you know the quantity of music that they do when they come from very what most people regard as being happy, safe, nice societies, mm. um, but really, people, most people in the UK have it okay, more so than they did compared to when they were in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, where even if you owned a house, you might have inherited it from your parents, but you're still really cash poor. Yeah. So, like for example, I mean. I remember my my dad telling me that my my grandparents growing up, they had to sell some land in order to be able to put an indoor bathroom in. Yeah. And they didn't have an indoor bathroom until the 1970s or something. Yeah. So, um, and that's where, like, you know, before then it was literally a big iron tub in, in front of the fire on a Sunday night. Oh, I, I know my paternal grand, grandfather, he still used the outside, outside toilet. Yeah. The 80s. Just because it was there and it was easier, and that was just part of his culture. I think this this will um, this will take us into into other discussions, and you know certainly subcultures is a big one, and and I think it can also lead us into women in heavy metal as well, because we've talked about the masculinity of heavy metal over the years and how it's now, you know, finally entertaining the idea of, of, of women in the genre as well, which. It's fucking ridiculous when you think about how long it's that's taken. But 
Um, but yeah, this this has been a, a starting point, I think, and 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 this 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 subject and this concept will will rumble on into future episodes. I can I can definitely see that coming. So mm. so yeah. Next week we have a bonus episode, which is going to be the complete antithesis of that. We are putting the Wolfman on trial. Now I'm a firm believer in a, in an adversarial judicial system. And, you know, and I think, you know, justice is blind, but it won't be next week. Okay. Um, And I've got to say, I think, I know I shouldn't go into this prejudice, but the Wolfman is is in jeopardy. He's going to be doing some hard time. Basically, the way I think about it is, you know, that song Captive Honor by Megadeth? Yeah. That is going to be the Wolfman because his soul better belong to jesus because his ass belongs to me so wolfman i know you'll be listening to this before your uh, your case is heard make sure you prepare your defense you're going to need it the crime I- is not the, the crime is not going to see ed sheeran because he's stone cold guilty of that we know that it's a fact the crime is the disrespect he has brought on this house on his people on his crowd we just can't have it. And he, and he needs to answer for his actions. I so, mean, who, who chooses to go and see that twat when Guns N' Roses are playing and you live in that city? I don't get to see bands like this. I would love to, and I can't. And he's just like, so for him not to go and see Guns N' Roses, shit's on me. It's like, you know, it, he owes it to me to go. You know, I'd almost allow it if it shits on you, but he will. He will answer his case, and I'm sure he'll have a strong defence. But I, I hope he's. <laughs> he better do. I hope. I hope he's prepared. You know, he, he he can bring witnesses. He can bring whoever he likes to the party if he wants to do that. But Wolfman, your uh, your day is coming. So that's, that's the bonus episode next week. After that, we'll be away for a couple of weeks, a bit of a summer holiday, um, and we'll be back in mid-August with a uh, with a full Belt and Braces review of Bloodstock 2022. So um, myself and the Wolfman will be attending and, uh, and we'll come back and tell you all about it. So tune in can next I, week for the Trial of the Wolf. Yeah, can I also say, if uh, anyone who's enjoyed this episode, um, especially those those around the world, if you've got a working class background, drop us a line. Talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Get involved. Absolutely. We want if to hear about it. Yeah. And if this is something that anybody's got a view on, because it's it's a subject that could divide quite a lot of opinion, I think. Mm. And if anybody, you know, wants to uh, wants to have their say, we will more than happily have you on to talk about it. So please do get in touch via all the socials. You know, you can find all the links by the um by the podcast bios and you know get in touch someone has got to come on this podcast and shoot you down it's got to happen no it's fine i don't you know i'm i'm open to uh all all uh, all all opinions and stuff you know i don't i know if someone if i'm wrong about something you know, come on, tell me why I'm wrong. I'll happily uh, sit there and listen. And then well, we we enable you, and we need someone to come yeah, on yeah. the antithesis of that. So I mean, like you know, I mean, if you if you come on this podcast and disagree with me, that's fine. 
After which, though, you will be hunted down and destroyed. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you to everyone for listening. Tune in next week for the trial of the Wolfman. Um, it, it'll be uh, it'll be a bit of a laugh, and uh, yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll see you all next week.